0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Red Hen Press, publisher of the novel Unseen City by Amy Shearn. Unseen City is a multi-generational portrait of New York and the unexpected connections between a lonely Brooklyn librarian A widower returning to his roots and a ghost still lingering in a home that was once part of an activist founded farming settlement described as, quote, an entrancing story of falling in and out of love and grief with a city, a person and a home by Naomi Jackson. Unseen City is the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Unseen City by Amy Schoen, available now from Red Hen Press. Best of all, get 40 percent off. Of Unseen City and your entire order for a limited time using the code OtherPPL. Just go to HTTPS colon slash slash shop. AER. IO slash red underscore hen underscore press. Use that offer code OtherPPL. All right? Okay. a also
1: prepared.
0: Hey everybody, what's up? How you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It is good to be with you. It's good to be talking into this microphone to you. I'm uh, very excited to have Stephen Dunn on the program today. He is the author of a couple of novels. The first is called Potted Meat. That was published in 2016, and the most recent novel is called Water and Power. Both are available from an indie press called Tarpaulin Sky. And uh, Stephen Dunn was born and raised in West Virginia. He spent 10 years in the Navy, water and power, deals with these experiences. I read it. I was really impressed with it. I wanted to talk with Stephen, and he was kind enough to give me his time. So my conversation with Stephen Dunn coming up momentarily, I do want to quickly apologize for the delay in getting this episode out. I had some AT&T internet issues. We had service guys here all afternoon yesterday into the night. They had to come back this morning, but the good news is uh, we got it resolved. It was so stressful for me just because it's taken a long time. It's been this saga. It's like the third time AT&T has had to come out. The customer service experience was not pleasant. And then we had the debate last night with Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump, all of it together. I went to bed last night and I couldn't sleep. Just got me all like worked up customer service shit bugs me Donald Trump bugs me the whole thing just make it stop it's got to stop this is insane anyway uh, this conversation with Stephen Dunn should hopefully help restore some sanity give everybody a little bit of a respite from uh, whatever static is out there and intruding upon our serenity you know what I mean? Oh, and let me also uh, remind you that if you want some other people gear, you can get that gear, t-shirts, sweatshirts, tank tops over at otherppl.com. Just click on the little t-shirt in the left sidebar. And if you're out there and you want to send in a photo of where you listen, we love getting those. Just uh, email the show, letters at otherppl.com. Take a selfie, take a photo of uh, your surroundings, whatever it is. Do both. I don't care. Send it in. Let us know where you are in space. You can also DM the photos to us on Twitter or Instagram. All right? Okay. So Stephen Dunn is the guest. His latest novel, Water and Power, is available from Tarpaulin Sky. Here he is, folks. This is Stephen Dunn.
1: Um, My mom worked for the school. She was a cook for the school. Um, There weren't a lot of jobs, but it it used to be like a big-ass coal mining town like really booming coal mining town um and people left you know so that's why I was so small you know it's just population kept decreasing and everything so i had some friends in high school quit to go work in the mines you know so there isn't a lot to do there very small
0: and that never appealed to you to go work in the mines
1: no not at all yeah it was good money though i think about it like my friends and like 99 making $32 an hour in West Virginia. I'm like, shit, man, that's like, that's rich, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. I think about, uh, I don't know if this was, I don't know if this is still a thing. I guess it probably is. But I remember when I was getting out of college in the, you know, mid to late 1990s, a lot of, uh, a lot of people or not a lot of people, but some people would go up to Alaska and work on those fishing boats. Oh, and it was similar it was like the the pay you know for a young person coming out of college was really good it's also a dangerous job but uh if you didn't work on the boats you could work in the canneries and i want to say if you did it for a summer you could walk away with like 20 grand or you know whatever it was but it was uh wow. it was attractive for that reason you could make like yeah. a, a lump of cash
1: where did you grow up um or go to high school
0: Uh, Milwaukee, I grew up, like, first part of my childhood was in Milwaukee. The second part was in Indiana.
1: Okay, wow, wow.
0: So, you know, no coal mines, but, I mean, Indiana, I don't know. Like, Indiana and West Virginia, it's not entirely dissimilar in terms of the the milieu.
1: Yeah, I don't think it is, yeah. Even, like, some of the language, uh, especially in southern Indiana, because some of that spillover from Kentucky and stuff, so, yeah.
0: It's that Appalachian you know, uh, what is it? Scots Irish. I don't even know what you call it, but there's a, I think there's a similar like migratory pattern or, uh, cultural history.
1: There is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So what about your dad? Was he, was he a coal miner?
1: No, my dad, he was an electrician, so he worked on TVs and stuff like that, but he didn't work much when I was growing up, but one of his jobs was being an electrician. So
0: what do you mean he didn't work much when you were growing up? Was he older, or did he just not work?
1: Um, I, I don't. Really, he just didn't work that much. Like he had little side jobs and stuff, but he wasn't like going out every day and coming back in. So I don't even know what to call it—freelancing or part-time. I don't know what was going on, but yeah. Well, no, that, that makes that makes. I feel like that's what a lot. Of, I mean, that's like what a lot of people do these days, right? Yeah. He spent most of his time like volunteering to like coach little league football and baseball and stuff. So that's what he did mostly was was coaching kids, which is pretty cool.
0: That's awesome. So he was involved. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what kind of kid were you?
1: Oh, man, I was fucking up all over the place. (laughs) Not really fucking up, but just like I don't want to say bad, but just like the artistic mind you know i played sports and everything but i was always outside like hiking before i knew what hiking was i was drawing a lot i was super into rap because of older cousins and shit too so yeah that's kind of what kind of kid i was just like always in trouble in school for drawing in class (laughs) you know that stuff
0: but a good kid you seem like you were like a likable kid
1: I think so, yeah. I had a couple, like, a few, like, really solid good friends and shit. We were all really cool, so, yeah. And, like, always bounced between, like, sports, the nerds, you know, (laughs) and all of that stuff. So just kind of, like, cool with everybody, especially, like, going up through high school because I did that. You know, I played sports, and I was in math Field Day, and I went to vocational school, you know, and I was a little weirdo, so I had a little goth girlfriend, too, at some point. (laughs) Wait, so, yeah.
0: wait, were you goth?
1: I, w- I was not goth, but I liked it for some reason, right? Like I was attracted to her, like that was part of the mystique was this goth shit she had going on, you know. <laughs> so we, like, listen to music. So I'm like, here, listen to this Jody'sie album, and she was like, here, listen to this Ozzy Osbourne album. You know,
0: like <laughs> wait, is Ozzy goth? I thought like the Cure was goth. I don't know. I I need to I study. Know, I need it, to read it, up.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Whatever it was at the same time, right? You know, <laughs> it wasn't rapping R&B, so it was, like, weird goth, you know, to, to us or whatever. So, so yeah, we looked pretty funny in high school. Like, I write about it, and, you know, like, people would call me JJ from Good Times and call her Dracula's daughter, you know? So we like, walking down the hallway. I got 70s clothes on and shit, and she looks like a vampire, you know? <laughs> <laughs> What was the uh what
0: was the like the racial makeup of is it Kimball that was the name of the town you grew yeah. up in
1: yeah, I wanna say Kimball was really black um so but my high school was about half and half, so I think we were mostly a black town in our like four hundred people town, so, yeah,
0: but the high school was pretty integrated it was like uh it was it wasn't just like you were like one of the only black kids or something like that it was oh no, yeah
1: not at all, yeah. Yeah, there were oftentimes like white kids were the only few, you know, like were the minority in some of our classes and stuff, especially in elementary school, you know, like there were like 3 or 4 white kids around, you know. We had had a lot of black teachers growing up, um had some white teachers too, so it was it was mixed. I want to say like maybe 70% black was my town possibly.
0: So. Okay. And and it and it was good. It's I mean it was uh what, was it like, was there a lot of hostility? Did you grow up around a lot of like racial animus and stuff like that?
1: Oh, totally. Yeah, man. It was, it was bad. Yeah. Uh, especially like when we would go to other towns, like people would call my coach a nigger lover and shit. When we would go to these other towns to play football and basketball. And, and there was like, we still had Klan marches in the 90s, you know, in my town, like down Main Street and shit. Um, so, yeah, it was like, really racist but we had a black town so yeah it's so hard to explain okay okay wait 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 what
0: what's going on when the clan is marching through main street in a black town
1: nothing we just mind our business and we like go on somewhere right (laughs) we just don't bother with it you know we see it you know but we just stay away from it um rebel flags everywhere you know (laughs) Um, but but also like the younger people wearing rebel flags when people say like it's culture not hate or whatever heritage not hate i feel like that was true for like my friends and shit in high school because you know they would go to black clubs with their little rebel flag shirts on and some jordans and maybe a fubu hat and be breakdancing in the black club right <laughs> so so they were like i don't think they knew like to them it was just like this is just like some southern redneck shit that we wear you know
0: yeah, no, I, I hear you because I, uh, when they were taking down the, or changing out the state flag in Mississippi and, um, you know, then they, I think they pulled they pulled it down in South Carolina as well. You know, there's been this movement in recent times and yeah. as it was happening, I was kind of applauding, but I think in the back of my mind, I was like, shit, I used to have a Dukes of Hazard lunchbox when I was like in <laughs> first grade.
1: <laughs> oh my God, I tell this story all the time. I had a little orphan Annie lunchbox and one of my uh, friends in school had a uh, Dukes of Hazard, and we traded. And my parents were like so mad that I had this fucking Dukes of Hazard lunchbox and they made me get rid of it. So I was without a lunchbox, like no orphan Annie lunchbox, no Dukes of Hazard lunchbox. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, like the thing is though, I mean, I was what, I, it's defensible. I was in first grade. I didn't know what I was doing. I just liked it. I just liked the general Lee. I thought it was like a fast car and you know, I was a kid and, Same. uh, yeah. I think when it comes to the the Confederate flag and its place in, like, American cultural life, especially in the South, I do think most people it's, – it's a cultural thing and somehow, like, is an emblematic of the South. But the problem I have is that all you have to do is think about it for, like, 10 seconds. Yeah. And then you go, oh – yeah, this is a dumb thing to be embracing. <laughs> you know, like to cling to it even though people have said, you know, have pointed out like, Hey, by the way, you know, this thing symbolizes um, you know, secession and defense of slavery and all this, you know, like clearly awful shit. Like, I don't think it should be like some like hugely heavy lift for people to make a change mentally and yet, you know, there's this Wait, yeah. there's like this devotion to it that freaks me out. So you're growing up, you said earlier that you were hiking before you knew what hiking was. And as I imagine, Kimball, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, like a rural area in Appalachia, like rolling Hills and stuff. Were you out in nature a lot as a kid? Like, were you just wandering the woods and and all that kind of stuff?
1: Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. It was just, yeah, that was just like where we played. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, we played in the streets and you know cut grass all the time and just walked wherever so yeah over the mountain through the train trunk, train tunnel so yeah just out in nature a lot yeah it was just always around us and um like we grew up in a lot of um there were a lot of abandoned houses and everything around so nature was also like living with us (laughs) in a way you know like we had to watch out for snakes and rats and shit you know in the house and a lot of people were connected to nature in that way just because we were in it you you hunt my uncle did yeah i went hunting a few times but i never did it myself a lot we fished a lot uh, went hunting quite a bit with my uncles and stuff but i never like took it up on my own
0: So what about books? How do books factor into your childhood? Was it something you embraced from an early age or is it something you came to later?
1: Something I came to later, yeah, they don't. I'm I'm writing about that now. How? I read a lot in elementary school, um, a lot of like Beverly Cleary and stuff, (laughs) you know, those things you read in as a young grade. But I only read one book from the time I was like from age 12 to 22. I read one book, which was uh, The Old Man and the Sea which I like it, you know, I still read that book from time to time, but yeah, it was something I got into later. But um, when I started writing, I list, listening to rap albums, right? So I learned a lot of geography and social shit and history shit through a lot of rap albums. So yeah. You know, so like one, like fiction book. So one non-textbook only read one non-textbook throughout my 12 to 22 life. <laughs> so
0: Yeah. Do you know why? I mean, cause I think back, I, 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 probably read a, like a, a bit more than that when I was that age, but I've heard similar sentiments expressed by guests on this show in the past, mm-hmm. usually, uh, you know, male guests who throughout like, you know, those junior high and high school years, like adolescence, you, I guess you're just like, so, you know, busy fucking around and <laughs> yeah. being a teenager, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It seems sort of natural, you know, to, to kind of not be Uh, in like super like bookish nerd mode though i guess some people are
1: yeah 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 that is interesting yeah yeah i don't know what i think it is busy fucking around but but what i'm writing about now is we did that with rap albums like we had classes basically like we'd all listen to a rap album and talk about it we argue about it you know uh so we did what you would do with books in school with rap albums so i was like that was a type of study for me in this type of communal way of discussing literature or whatever it was. So, so yeah, I was like, we still did that functionally. It just wasn't with books. It was with music.
0: What were some of the formative rap albums of your youth?
1: Oh boy. Um, Illmatic, Nas's Illmatic, um, Nas's for <laughs> pretty much Nas's first three albums. Um, I want to say a lot. Tribe Called Quest, a lot of Tribe Called Quest. I feel heavy- like, I feel
0: like, uh, I, I've been made fun of for admitting like I'm always like I like Tribe Called Quest and everyone's always like that's always the shit that white people say they like <laughs> oh what
1: <laughs> I never not do that
0: <laughs> I don't know what I'm it is
1: I mean at any time anybody says they like it I'm like yes yes <laughs> yeah
0: I love Tribe Called Quest
1: yeah yeah Tribe uh and a lot of uh heavy d because my mom and my dad loved heavy d so we listened to heavy d a lot right <laughs> uh like i listened to it independently of them and they listened to it independently of me but we also listened to it together so heavy d was really important to me too which is also why i like struggled with a lot of other rap too i'm like oh well, heavy d you really don't call women bitches and like you know, he, he's okay. You know? So I struggle with a lot of other rap because of heavy D, which is interesting. But.
0: Yeah. So you uh you graduate high school in West Virginia and then you go you go on to join the Navy. Is that right after you graduate?
1: Yeah, like the summer after. Yeah. Yeah. Spent the summer then left. Yeah.
0: What well, what prompted that?
1: Um nothing. Just being poor actually in a one to get out of West Virginia quickly and I didn't know much about college I had some older cousins they went to college but I knew they were back and they were talking about money all the time so I just didn't know like I didn't know you could get loans to go to college actually like nobody talked to me about this stuff so um, I wanted to be an architect because that's what I did like my whole like high school was doing vocational school and designing shit making blueprints so I wanted to do that but I just didn't know that it was possible. So I just defaulted and joined the Navy (laughs) with a couple of my other friends.
0: Do you have uh, family members who were military? Like was your dad military? Was there any kind of tradition you were following?
1: Not at all, yeah. One of my uncles was in the military, uh, but he didn't talk about it much, you know, and yeah. So yeah, I wasn't following any tradition, any like sense of duty, any sense of patriotism. It was, you know, looking at those like advanced commercials about learning the computers and shit and then just wanted to get out the wanted to get out of West Virginia so it was just purely like functional and a way to escape
0: and what year was this that you joined
1: oh uh, 99 yeah
0: 99 okay so pre nine eleven.
1: yeah so it was like 2000 is coming up learn computers and blah 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 you know the cutting edge of everything so.
0: right see the world yeah yeah um so let's talk about your book
1: and I, you know,
0: I have read not a whole lot in this genre, which I guess would be called like what military literature. Yeah. Like it's, you know, it's nominally a novel. I think that's how it's, it's classified. But, um, you know, you also point out that it's like an ethnography. It reads a lot like nonfiction. It feels like a hybrid form. Is that fair?
1: Oh, totally. Yeah, it is. I just, I call it a novel. I think it's just easy to call it that, um, and I want it to be read from like front to back and there's some shit that develops over time. And I think a novel can hold all of these different things. So I just like, it's a novel. We'll just read it as that. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I just, I just finished a similar sort of book that everybody thinks is a memoir, but I'm like, no, it's really a novel. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, for those people listening who have not read, you know, this book feels, um, in its like formal construction, like a liter- a work of literary collage, um, you're combining different elements. There's a visual element to your book. You have uh, photos. You have um, you know reproductions of I what I believe are official like brochures from the navy. Yeah. Um, you have um, like ma- like I think like excerpts or images of manuals around things like sexual harassment and. Uh, those kinds of protocols. And so you're sharing like proprietary information or uh, like (laughs) inside info. And rather than just producing it in text, you're actually sharing the images themselves. And so it feels as you're reading like, uh, or at least it felt this way for me, like I was getting uh, insight and perspective that I've never gotten before. Um, And I'm just curious to hear you talk about how you settled on this kind of um, framework? Like how did the book uh, become itself? Did you start this way or did you land here after some trial and error?
1: Yeah, I I landed there after some trial and error. So I'll start with um, about, I hate military literature most of the time because it is singular in its voice, right? So even anti-military literature is like still a singular you know, like heroic type of thing. So like functionally, I feel like it's, they're similar to like pro-military narratives and stuff. And even anti-military books still focus on themselves as a victim. But I'm like, oh, we also have these other people who are also victims and other people in the military who are also victims. Um so, yeah, it started out being like that. I was like, I want it to be vocal and have these different um, things to it because of the textures of all of these documents and people's voices. So that's how it started off as. So I knew I, I wanted that. And then this um, fictional ethnography shape came later. You know, it's like, write about a person, like learning <laughs> other people in the military or wanting to include these things. So, yeah. And then um, as far as like, like those documents themselves, like the, um, how to train gay people, <laughs> you know, how to report gay people. There was the comic book that teaches you how to do that. And I, I couldn't reproduce that in text. Like it wouldn't do its job, you know, and it was, and I saved that before. I knew I was a writer. I saved that comic book cause I thought it was so stupid. Um, <laughs> so like it was something about it. I was collecting these, these memories, these documents and everything. So, um, so yeah, that's how it came about. Yeah, and wanting to offer like people the texture of coming across this stupid comic book, or a PowerPoint brief that teaches you about sexual harassment. There's something about that material for me.
0: Well, it's interesting uh, to hear you talk about this because I have not been in the military, but I can—I mean, uh, I can imagine that you know, based on what little I know, that you know, you're in an environment where obviously things are very orderly there are protocols for just about everything um, efficiency is prized there are um you know systems that you have to follow and you know you're on a a very like routine schedule and all the all the rest and i think by virtue of that i'm just imagining that it's not an environment in which a lot of critical thinking is either encouraged or um provided for time-wise you don't have a lot of time typically to sit around questioning you're probably not going to go to your commanding officer and be like why are we doing this comic book you know (laughs) Uh, you just have to sort of toe the line and get on with your day and do whatever you you're commanded to do you know there's a chain of command that that you have to follow and so uh, that's why I think uh, your book is so powerful and why I responded to it so much is because even though you're not as you said The protagonist in a singular way. um, I very much felt your presence throughout as the inquisitor and as an honest broker, somebody trying to understand something that is very complex. And, um, you know, I think by making it multivocal and by being so openly investigatory in your approach, you're honoring that complexity and uh, illuminating it for the reader. So, I don't know. I just, I, I, I was very, um, I have a lot of admiration for the place that you landed in terms of how you set it up. Um, okay. I, am um, kind of rambling, but it's all good stuff. I'm, I'm praising you. <laughs>
1: yeah, appreciate it. No, I appreciate it. Yeah.
0: Um, and I think too, about like, uh, I think it's like a Mark Twain quote and it's about how like a book, you know, when it, if a book is to be done well, it has to find its form. It's something like that, you know, there's only kind of one way to write or tell an individual story. And I think you got to the place you needed to get to, to tell the story of the Navy through a lens that made sense to you.
1: Yeah, yeah, thank you, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: And I want to talk as well about, um, or I want to talk more deeply about the decision to make it multivocal. Um, all throughout the book, you feature interviews anonymously, um, with, um, you know, fellow soldiers. I, I think, are they all, uh, Navy men and women or are there people from other branches of the armed forces?
1: Yeah. So, so some from other branches, like the army and the air force. Um, yeah, I think some people specifically say like, Oh, when I got out the air force, you know, so it's from other branches also. Yeah.
0: Okay. So let's talk about that. Like you set about to tell this, and at some point you went out and conducted actual interviews, or are these, are these fictionalized?
1: I did conduct actual interviews, so and it was easy to do because I had a lot of friends from the military and people that I still had access to, even though I wasn't in the military. So, so yeah, I, I don't want—I mean, not easy, but like getting interviews was easy, right? To, to ask people, like, hey, I'm writing this book. And I based that off of real life, too. And it was like, hey, you told me about this, like, some years ago. You know, like, I'm writing this book. Would you want to, like, give it to me for the book or whatever? And, like, we have all of these underground conversations that we would never say, you know, aloud while we're in the military. So that was part of the reason, too, is, like, I've moved through the military having these conversations with people that i think are safe enough to have them with right and uh they'll tell me something i'm like wow and we can't do anything with it but you know like support each other so that's why i wanted the book to do that too is like to have these conversations that we would have that you can't have officially in the military yeah
0: Yeah, and i like you know um i like the the multivocal thing because it underscores just how big You know, the armed forces are how many different people, how many different kinds of people are involved, how many different um, levels of experience or kinds of experience people can have. Like, I think there's one person you interview who's like, you know, an amputee or lost a limb in battle and basically feels like they would do it all over again. Um, You have other people who are a lot more um, negative uh, in terms of their like the way they apprehend their service and, you know, what it means to, or, you know, there, there's even an entire uh, diatribe against the word service or or at least a meditation oh, yeah. on it, you know? So I don't know. There's a lot more ambivalence uh, from other people, but I think that in the single perspective books that you're referring to, you know, some of the classic novels about war literature, there tends to be a single consciousness that things get filtered through. And it's usually like either a satire or, you know, I think at its best, it's some kind of satire or anti war
1: yeah.
0: you know a screed, but even there you know you're sort of missing a lot you're missing the people who are like earnestly like wearing that uniform and really believe in the cause <laughs> um, you know you do see a lot of that it's not all people who are disgruntled or psycho you know there are a lot of good pe- there are a lot of people in the military who are kind of whole in it for. Like, yeah, I guess what you would call the right reasons.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I struggle with too. Is like people who are like, I have my own views of it. Like I'm cynical (laughs) and negative about it, you know, but then like good people who are like really believe what they're doing is right. And all of that. So I'm like, man, it's a, it's a struggle for me to even wrap my head around it in the military, you know? So yeah. Like I may not feel this way, but they do, but, uh, they, they might be wrong, <laughs> you know? Like, I might be wrong, too.
0: Did you feel an acute sense of confusion in while you were in the military about what you were doing? Or was it one of these things where like, you know, you, you signed up, you got very busy because the military's good at, at keeping people busy. And once it was over, you looked back and were like, what the fuck was that? Or was it confusion all the way through? <laughs>
1: It was was confusion all the way through. I feel maybe like the first year I tried to, like, be in the military, right? Like, this is what I need to do to be here. And I was never any good at it. Um, And then when I went to Japan and there were people, a lot of people protesting in front of the base. And I think that's one of the things that, like, made me think more deeply about it. And that that started it. And then I started seeing more and more. And then I would collect newspapers from um, Bahrain. I have a lot of newspapers from Bahrain where it was like, fuck America, <laughs> you know, and all of this shit. And I was like, man, this totally is not lining up with the message we receive, you know, with from literature, from culture, from people in the street, from people in the military themselves. You know, like we're doing great. This is blah, blah, blah. And I was like, stuff isn't lining up here, you know.
0: When you were in Japan, were you in Okinawa? Is that where the protests were?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was in Okinawa, yeah, yeah. And Yakuza one time, too, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I just know that's where the, you know, I know there's a big base in Okinawa that's been a point of controversy for locals there for a long time, so.
1: Yeah, yep. and I didn't know that, you know. I'm just like a little young dude in the military. I was like, oh, wow, this is, you know. Yeah.
0: These people hate us.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I was like, I see why they hate that motherfucker right there because I hate them too, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs>
0: all right. So let's ask, I want to ask you, like, what kind of soldier were you? I know you said you gave it your, your all your first year. Um, but like, you know, when you, we sort of measure yourself against the a broad sample of people in the Navy. Like, where did you, where did you rank? Like what kind of day-to-day soldier were you?
1: Oh, so terrible. Um, Just, I couldn't even like keep my uniform straight, you know, just like kind of sloppy thinking too much too, like too critical of myself, you know, like of everybody else. And um, just like, it was easy to be in the military in a way. Like I was just slacking pretty much for 10 years and I advanced, I made money. I was able to buy houses, (laughs) you know? So like I was really shitty as a soldier or, a what um, seaman yeah really shitty as a seaman but i was uh smart enough to do my job right so like i was good at my radar technology and math shit but i was just not good at being in the military um i got in trouble a lot <laughs> um Uh, I went to one of the protests, like immigrant protests down in Denver, and then I brought the Mexican flag back to work. It was kind of big, and then somebody put a U.S. flag under my Mexican flag, so it appeared that I was flying the Mexican flag higher than the U.S. flag, which was an issue. Uh, So my punishment was to give training to everybody, like something military-related training So I looked up how the military recruits below the poverty line and brought up a map of the concentration of uh, recruiting stations and shit. Uh And so I was like, uh, the military recruits uneducated and poor people, right? And everybody got mad at me because they thought I was calling people poor and stupid. And I was like, but this is the reality of recruiting. So that's who I was. Just kind of like knew you could get along and not get kicked out, but I could also like cause trouble. So yeah, I was a troublemaker basically. <laughs> yeah.
0: but that's good. I feel I feel like you walked the line. That's what you you know you you sort of like uh you kept collecting a salary, but you also were subversive in the ways that you could be.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah.
0: And you were in it for ten years.
1: Yeah, um, and because after the first four years, like I just I still wasn't sure about the world or anything, just because I was so like protected in the military that. And I was in Hawaii, so I went from West Virginia to Hawaii. And I was like, I don't know, like I can't get out the military right now because I don't know anything. And they gave me some money, reenlistment bonus. So I was like, Oh, that's a lot of money, forty thousand dollars, <laughs> you know, for six more years. I thought it was a lot of money. So yeah, that's why I stayed.
0: <clears throat> well, and what about um, what about nine eleven? You get in in what the late nineties, and what two years in. 9-11 happens how does that change your service
1: oh my god it was such a fucking joke um such a joke in in a way that a lot of people who were in the military beforehand um We nobody was really that patriot. I don't want to say nobody, but patriotism wasn't really like a front runner of people in the military. A lot of people were like, "I want money for college. I want to travel," you know. And then after that happened, then like a lot of the attitudes started changing, and I can understand why that would change, but on 9-11 people always like to say like where you were so we were in Hawaii and we didn't have to go to work because we weren't non-essential and we all got drunk in the barracks and just like glad that we didn't have to go to work we weren't glad about 9-11 of course but it was like oh my god we don't have to go to that place today and we were pretty much acting like college kids I guess you know and then a lot of people who joined afterwards were like more patriotic and more serious But other people in the military before like retrofitted that to themselves, you know, so it's like this one event. I mean, events, singular events change things, especially something like that. But yeah, so I just want to say it was a joke because I feel like it was easy for a lot of people to retrofit this attitude, even if they didn't have it. And it didn't always seem sincere, but I could be wrong about that.
0: What about your like, what about the actual nuts and bolts of your service? Like, did you wind up over in the Middle East?
1: Um, yeah, I went to Bahrain once, uh, but I was on submarines submarine, so I didn't have to, like, physically go. We could volunteer to go if we wanted to, Um, like the the interview in the book. So that was a fictional interview because it was one of my, like, experiences where my chief was like, hey, you can volunteer to go over there, you know, in the Middle East. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going, you know, um, that's not me. So that was one of my experiences that I fictionalized as an interview for the book. But yeah, so, and it was just the nature of our job, right? We were intelligent. So we didn't have to go shoot guns or anything. Um, so yeah, I didn't really like have to go, go, but more on a submarine and go underwater for a couple months. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was interesting, but also like, I saw all the racism at the same time. Um, I made a joke before a comedian did. I was like, "Oh, now like Muslims are the new niggas in America at work," and I got in a lot of trouble for that. Uh, Somebody called me racist, (laughs) like all types of stuff. I was like, "No, this is what I'm saying. Like, I can still see the the racism in all of this, and like, what's going on in people's attitudes, you know, in the military with this." And I was like, "I'm not okay with this. I can't be proud and I can't be patriotic because I still see all the racism. It's not different from black people, right?" Um, so yeah, that was my take on it being in there.
0: Well, this is something that your book addresses that I think also distinguishes it in that you're talking about things that do not often get discussed in military literature or in conversations about the military, uh, which is the experience of uh, homosexuals in in the military, um, issues of race, um, sexual harassment, the way that, um, you know, female soldiers might be treated. Uh, a lot of the times this stuff just sort of gets buried or it's a occasionally there's an exposé or some story that I'll see maybe I'm just not reading enough but uh to me it felt like uh the right choice again uh, you know to cover this stuff because you know as you describe it happens often you know I'm thinking of the sexual harassment stuff um this is not some isolated problem and it, it also was kind of confirming for me because I've always wondered about that like you have all these dudes in the military who are full of all this testosterone and are, you know, trained for aggression and all this stuff. And there's very limited access to any kind mm-hmm. of, uh, like social life or, or women or anything. And then suddenly there's a, like a couple of cute female soldiers. I always think about those female soldiers, like what must it like, like be like for them to be surrounded by all this, um, you know, like uh, hyped up masculine energy.
1: Yeah man (laughs) you you said it yes that's exactly yeah it's exactly what it is um I don't know some some people like take it on right like some women I've seen take it on like they become one of the guys right and um some women don't and they struggle with it yeah I don't know um and that's one of the stories that I had to cut out of the book was because I had a woman um talking about sexual harassment so giving me a firsthand account of her sexual harassment and then Colin Kaepernick didn't kneel for the flag and she was super offended and I was like I don't see a problem with it so we got an argument about that and she was like don't put my story in your book and I was like all right I cannot put it in the book then um, so it was interesting that she was really critical of the military for like not protecting her against sexual assault and like protecting the people above her who assaulted her. But on one hand, she was not critical about, um, I don't want to say not critical, but on one hand she was not accepting of somebody else, a civilian not kneeling, I mean, not standing for the national anthem. So that was a, yeah. I don't know what to think about this still. Uh,
0: You know what, here, okay, this is a pet peeve of mine. And it's sort of tied – or not tied, but it's very similar to the uh, arguments and discussions around the Confederate flag. Uh, In that, I think with like a very minimal amount of thought, one should be able to figure out that Colin Kaepernick, when he is kneeling during the anthem, is not like trying to piss on soldiers or – yeah. Or or like, you know, be some sort of like hateful anti-American. He's protesting racial injustice and he's trying to... I mean, do we not understand what this is? It seems so obvious. He's been clear about it. Why are we trying to twist this into something that it's not? And why are we being such big babies? Like, the guy's protesting. This is America. Soldiers fight and die for that very right so that people can protest their government. Like... The fact that he's actually exercising that right is now offensive. Like it just,
1: it, like am I yeah. am I
0: missing something?
1: No, I don't think you are. Uh, no, um, but people feel offended, right? Like they are part of this flag so much, like they're so linked to this flag that they feel like it's offensive. You know, and maybe they don't want to admit that this flag is also racist too, right? Like it, it stands for racism too. You know, like there's a lot of racism done behind the name of this flag. So I don't think people want to do the work to think about what that really means <laughs>
0: yeah it's like it is kind of a convenient like emotional exercise to just be like that's my flag you know what i'm saying like and oh, yeah. and to sort of ch- like chest thump and talk about patriotism and all this different stuff but i don't know it's just like it I, to me it just feels like so depressingly simple-minded like it does it doesn't even take that much to figure out that uh you know the flag, like you're saying, it isn't confined to like one narrow set of meetings. There's quite a lot inside of it. And yeah, I don't know. This is America. We should be able to protest. I don't understand why people don't get that.
1: Yeah. 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 <laughs>
0: you're, you're like, yeah, tell me about it, dude. Uh, no, I
1: just saying, like, I agree with you. It's like depressing and just, man. Yeah.
0: So did you ever have any situations in the military where you felt physically threatened? Like, uh, you know, due to uh, terrorism or any kind of like, you know, militaristic danger?
1: No, I haven't. Yeah. Just because of my job, like, um, being on submarines mostly and then oh, right. being um, like working with radars and satellites and stuff. So nothing like that, you know? <laughs> which is nice. And I wonder like, would I feel differently? Like if I my body was under a physical threat of violence, would I feel differently about it?
0: I would imagine you would feel differently,
1: right? <laughs> yeah 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 so
0: (laughs) well i i think uh one of the you know more uh, um like harrowing parts of the book is the descriptions you uh include about submarine life i have a cousin who is like a like a super genius like nuclear physicist he has like two phds he's like one of these people you know Um, wow (laughs) yeah total math science but like super genius and he uh, was in the Navy and would go out on, you know, what, like three-month deployments, whatever it was, on these submarines. And I cannot imagine living underwater on a submarine for that long. How the fuck do people do that? That seems like nightmarish to me.
1: It, man, it, it is a very, like, weird thing. And I've never had anything to compare it to until quarantine recently. And I was like, this is similar. Like, you have to stay in your house, but you can also call your friends and you can watch TV (laughs) and shit, right? So, yeah, I was like, really, I'm okay with quarantine because I was on submarines so much. Um, But I think for me, like, I had to let myself, like, be crazy or, uh, like, know that it's bad. I, like, really take it down a notch, like, downshift my whole being, (laughs) you know, like, to prepare myself to be on the submarine. Uh, You know, it's like what I was saying in the book, like don't expect too much, you know, just like kind of be even killed, which is easier said than done. Like it takes a lot of work to be that way. Um, Yeah, it's it's weird, man. It's weird. And then like dudes, dudes, to be around that many goddamn men for that long is just not okay.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, no, like one of the more like stomach turning passages is where you're talking about everybody like jerking off in the showers and, All the people just, you know, bodily fluids everywhere. And then talking about uh, how I think I had never thought about how submarines dispose of human waste. Um, I think you compared it to like a whale with diarrhea, how it's like like blasted out of the submarine with a thousand pounds of pressure. And I'm just like, oh, my God, like, how do you even how do you keep it clean? I guess the military does a good job of keeping things clean, but it seems like it would just be filthy in there
1: what the the inside of the submarine yeah it is yeah it's dirty yeah it's like no matter how much you take a shower how much you clean it's always dirty there's like film like a grease film you know everywhere it's just the nature of the thing it's dirty you're always tired you know (laughs) yeah it's a really weird thing i'd never thought about the way submarine like you dispose of waste on a submarine either before i was on it and i was like oh wow i never you know that makes sense you know
0: what about mental health? I, I feel like people would get depressed. You'd be on a submarine for three months, you're locked down there like a thousand feet below the ocean or whatever. Like do you ever start to like do you ever start to feel moods come on, people getting sad? Anybody get claustrophobic and freak out?
1: I've never seen anybody get claustrophobic. I think there's a test for that. But other mental health people they don't really like test you that much for it. Um but yeah, people do get really depressed and angry. Like I've gotten super depressed on there. Um, like angry like little things will set people off you know like and you start to see it after about a week and a half you know so like not even that far in and then it's like full on from there you know Um, yeah people like mad about people chewing too loud you know just like simple things <laughs> like really get some people's nerves it is super fucking depressing man Like, yeah
0: and then you come up, like you've been down underwater for two months and then you, you uh, you know, emerge from the sea and they let you loose in like what, like Thailand?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I mean, God only knows what, I mean, American soldiers, that's sort of like the, uh, that's sort of like the popular knowledge at this point. It's just like, I feel like uh, going back to Vietnam, you know, you have all these young soldiers on leave in these, like port towns in asia or whatever and it's just hookers and booze
1: basically yeah yeah it's like people tend to act like that anyway wild or whatever like getting off the ships you know whatever but then like when you talk about people getting off of a submarine after a few months you know it's like it's it's nuts you know It's, it's crazy but i just wanted to like not be around anybody. That was my thing. I was like, I just want to go to a hotel, sit in the bathtub, go eat some good food and like chill out, and go to fuck home. You know?
0: <laughs> I hear that. I hear it. Like, I think that's me. Like that's the writerly introvert in you. You're like, can I just not be around so many goddamn <laughs> people all the time? <laughs> and can I have like a clean room with like a nice, yeah, yeah. that's how I think I would have been too. But um, you do see bad behavior. You know, I think when you've got that much like aggression and sexual frustration and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, sort of, uh, locked up inside of a submarine and then, you know, people get out and have too much to drink. And I imagine you probably witnessed like some questionable, questionable behavior.
1: Oh yeah. A lot. Yeah. And you can still get called a hero. That's the interesting thing about it to me. Right. (laughs) Like. You could be as shitty as you want to be in the military, but you still get to be a hero, which is, ah, uh, which I don't understand.
0: <laughs> how, how do you feel about it when people come up to you? I'm assuming, especially when you were wearing your like navy whites or whatever, like people would come up to you and thank you for your service at the airport or whatever. Do you ever get that? Like, and how does that make? How does yeah. that make? How does that make you feel? And then how does that average soldier? Relate to that. You guys must talk about it, right? How people, how like you know, civilians treat you.
1: Some people talk about like let's say with trusted people, right? You can talk about this, and with trusted people, you're like, I don't really like this shit, you know. Like I don't believe it, you know. Like not everybody is a hero, so you can talk openly like that with some people. Um, so there, are, I knew quite a few people who felt like that, and I knew quite a few people who didn't question it, you know. Like they could have just gotten out of jail for beating their wife or whatever but then go out in the street with their uniform on and somebody's like thank you so much hero and they're like you're right you're welcome right i am a hero um yeah <laughs> so a lot of people love it i feel like that's the common thing like they really feel like they're doing something important so they think it's deserved or they get upset when people don't acknowledge that in them you know and then there are people like me and my few friends who are like no don't don't tell me please you know i didn't argue with people before like i would just say you know like if somebody says they're praying for you i'm like oh your intent is good you know like i don't necessarily believe in god but i thank you for your prayer you know um i used to be like that with people who say thank you for your service i'm like i don't believe it but whatever i appreciate it you mean well um but I've started letting people know now. I was like, you know, I don't really like that. I don't feel like it's deserving. <laughs> you know, probably spend too much time explaining it to people. But I just want to like put that in people's consciousness. Like, that's not okay all the time, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah was, what should people say? There's nothing, right? Or, well, I don't know. Like, it's hard to know, you know, if you're talking to somebody yeah. who's been in like a war theater or a combat and is back home, um, it's weird for me because I think. I tend to be predisposed to pacifism and I'm not hugely in favor of, uh, armed conflict. I guess there are some instances where I could see it being justified if there's like an imminent threat to a large civilian population. I mean, it's, it's complicated, but yes. you know, it's like to, like, I, I went through this with a cousin of mine who, uh, was in the army or no, was he in the navy? no he was in the air force <laughs> um and he was over in kuwait during the iraq war and i was really worried about him and i was very much against the iraq war um i didn't think the justification for bombing iraq was there um you know vis-a-vis 911 and i remember trying to like walk that line between expressing like concern for him and admiration for him but also you know my like like also being honest about my disdain for george w bush and dick cheney and the decisions they were making yeah you know what i'm saying
1: yes I. yeah yeah I same with me too <laughs> yeah i felt even in the military like i felt that same thing and uh, we were doing these conversations i helped put together like a veterans anthology and we we're talking about this idea of service and one woman said I feel like y'all do about, you know, like saying, thank you for your service. I don't want to say it, but I also want to show my concern. So I just tell people like, Hey, I'm glad you're home. Or like, I'm glad you made it home. And I was like, wow, that's a, that's caring, but it's also not, you know, um, like patronizing. Yeah. Yeah. Not putting like this false hero worship on people. So yeah, I was like, that's, that's good. I like that one. (laughs) You know,
0: I'm going to steal that one. I'm glad you're home. That's a nice thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you're not on that fucking submarine anymore Thank God
1: <laughs> Yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah but that's like That's the the same dilemma that I dealt with Too you know like you have good friends And then like I'll judge them for it, you know like just say Something neutral like hey glad you made It back you know like I don't really mess with Butch I don't think we should be doing this but then whenever like You're wrong we should be doing it and then I'm like well fuck you uh, I can move on I mean, I'm still glad you're alive, but I don't have to deal with you. Right?
0: <laughs> like, <laughs> what about like, what about what you learn about people? Like, I, I think from a writerly perspective that you must have, you must get so much material from your military experiences, like enough to sustain you for many books, not just writing about like explicitly military things, but just writing about the people you meet. Cause you're working in such close quarters with people from a variety of different backgrounds uh can you talk a little bit about that experience and like maybe what like the like what is the racial um situation in the military like like the optimist in me wants to believe that it's better because you're sort of depending on one another for your safety and is there a more egalitarian culture in the military than might exist elsewhere in civilian quarters in america or is it is that a fallacy
1: no i i think on the surface it is um or like institutionally, right? Because let's say like the military was the reason a lot of Black people moved into middle class after World War II, right? So functionally it is, but I think socially it's pretended to be um, because like you depend on each other. So often white people will ignore like the very real like racist things that Black people have to deal with because they think it's, egalitarian, you know, they, they think it's all equal. Cause like we're getting paid the same, we're treated the same, but you know, you see favoritism shown and everything. And it's usually has something to do with race often. Um, yeah. Um, and it's okay for like, if there's more than like two black people sitting together, some white dude can totally come up and like, if it's more than two of y'all, it's a gang, you know? Um, like it's, it's a funny joke. It could be a joke, but like there's something very real behind that too, that may not always be funny, you know, but so there's a liberty taking with racial things as far as jokes because they think it's all equal. So, yeah. And ignore it. Yeah. some Somebody told me that, too, about one of somebody I was in the military with. They heard me on the interview saying, talking about the racism, like I was in the military with you. You didn't experience racism. I was like okay, thank you for telling me that.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for informing me about the contents of my own experience. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so I feel like it's worse in a sense because it's ignored and taken liberties with.
0: <laughs> and what about the political culture in the military? I think, again, like outside looking in, popular perception would be that the military uh, has a strong, like, right-wing orientation. Um was that your experience within it?
1: Yes, yeah, strong right-wing or like neutral. Um, so like liberal people kind of kept quiet, you know, like I, I definitely felt like I would have been liberal while I was in the military, but you know, I kept quiet. Um, like, yes, I'm for gay rights and other people like aren't. <laughs> you know, or, like I'm for immigrant rights, you know, like when I got in trouble about going to the immigrant march and then like people are openly like conservative there. So and then more quietly liberal. So usually like the quiet people you're like, okay, I kinda know what you are, maybe, <laughs> you know. <laughs> just yeah.
0: Just so like a a look, a look in their eye.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh so what about let, let, let's go back to books, because you said, you know, you had this this sort of fallow period between the ages of 12 and 22 or whatever, where you only read a book. Yeah. Uh, but you were listening a lot to rap, which I think, you know, it sounds like uh, it's like a form of uh, interacting with poetry and thinking, yeah. thinking deeply about it. I mean, that's the way I would sort of conceive of it from a literary perspective. But at some point things must have shifted and you must have started reading Uh, more deeply. Can you talk about when that happened and what kinds of books were really speaking to you?
1: Yeah, I, what is it? So I started, um, I was reading Nikki Giovanni's Love Poems. (laughs) I think that was like one of the first books that I read, like after that long period of not reading was Nikki Giovanni's Love Poems. And I still have that book too. And uh, something from Harriet Tubman, I started reading that and then um, Kurt Vonnegut, too. So those were like the things when I started reading again. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, cool, books. I remember liking books in my life, you know. And uh, But I still didn't think about writing. I didn't want to be a writer until like a few years later because I, um, I was a visual artist, so I was still painting and everything. And I had an art show. <clears throat> oh, sorry. I had an art show, and my wife came to the opening. She was like, you ever realize how many words you have on your paintings? And I was like, ah, You know that's that's what it was you know like preparing for the art show something didn't feel right and i didn't realize like i was doing with words what i felt like i couldn't do visually anymore so um so yeah and then at that moment i was like all right i should start writing i think i was like 26 when that happened so yeah so i started writing again (laughs) i mean so i started writing at 26
0: Hmm. and reading more like i imagine you undertook like a, a more serious program of reading at that point
1: yeah, yeah. Well, in listening, too. So I went back and started <laughs> listening to rap, like, closely, like, more closely, like, Illmatic specifically, because I wanted to write about West Virginia, and I remember feeling like I was in New York um, while listening to that album over the years repeatedly, so I went back. It was like, what is it about this thing that makes me feel like I'm here? Um, so I started applying a lot of that stuff to my writing, like, to writing my book and everything, so. And um, more reading to like kept reading Kirk Vonnegut, of course. Um, yeah, just finding like a whole bunch of different stuff to read. Yeah, it's nice.
0: What was it about Vonnegut? I mean, I'm assuming what spoke to you about Vonnegut is what speaks to most people. I mean, it's the humor. It's the, um, I don't know, the deep like morality and kind of clear sightedness that he has around issues of war and peace and social justice. Like that was it.
1: Yeah, I think so, yeah. And definitely like the humor and yeah, and just like how weird it was too. So it just made me think about a lot of different things. Um Yeah, and I actually had a friend who was like, Hey, have you read Kurt Vonnegut? I was like, No, I've never heard of him, you know. Uh it was a friend in the military too, yeah, a friend in the navy who was like sorta of like me in a way, you know, and um he asked me had I read Vonnegut and I never had and,
0: I love hearing yeah. that. I love hearing that Vonnegut is circulating among uh, active soldiers or at least, or recently active soldiers. Um, I was just like sort of extolling his virtues. And like one of the things that I think gets missed about him and about uh, any of the quote unquote anti-war novelists, uh, in particular from the 20th century is like what a deep sense of patriotism he's operating from too. There's such a gr- yeah. there's such a grief in him, uh, <laughs> as a through line to all of his books. There's such a grief in him over, uh, america and what has happened in american life in his lifetime
1: yeah yeah yep yeah i, I always thought about that too but thought about like how it wasn't like you know what i mean like i'm a young black dude in poverty so that wasn't his so i feel like the america he's grieving was never the america i was grieving but i still liked you know i still like his work but i always recognize that you know
0: Yeah. I mean like different idea. I think like obviously coming at it from different vectors um, and life experiences, but wouldn't you say that like both of you are grieving an America that's fallen way short of its highest ideals?
1: (laughs) Yes, totally. Yeah. You are totally right about that. Yeah. 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 And I think also too, like the plain language for me, I don't want to say plain, you know, I don't, yeah, I'll say plain language. Like Seemingly like straightforward language with Vonnegut had and the playfulness and everything. So that's, and I loved it. So I just like started reading all of his books and it was pretty great. And I had to stop reading Vonnegut when I wrote, when I started writing Water and Power because, like, ah, if I don't, I would probably write another Vonnegut book. So I just stopped reading uh, Slaughterhouse Five, you know.
0: No, no, it's definitely your own. And um, I think. Knowing that you're a fan of Vonnegut, you know, I think I can like retroactively see um, more solidly the influence that he may have had. I think the integration of visuals, you know, and that sense of play and... Um, you know I'm thinking of Breakfast of Champions I think is where he's illustrating and drawing assholes and all that kind of stuff
1: yeah yeah. But uh, yeah. I reference him in the submarine story about the human zoo thing like I made sure to reference Vonnegut because like, it was a big source of my reading you know sure
0: sure yeah. yeah no and I think you know there's something about I mean his war experience was super horrific I don't know I mean I guess if you read him you probably know a bit about it but Yeah. Um, Yeah. It was really bad. And I think maybe even for, even for me, I want to say I read something recently that got into the details of what he actually went through or some of the most horrific things. And it exceeded what I already knew. And I knew that he had been, you know, in it, but, uh, he was really wrecked by it his whole life. Uh, I think it, you know, I don't think he ever, fully got out from under it I don't know if I don't know if you could but uh I guess like a a question to ask is do you feel that because of like even if you didn't go into combat and you didn't really witness the kind of destruction that a soldier like Vonnegut may have or like a frontline soldier in Iraq may have or whatever um because of just the inherent stakes, like when you're on a submarine, even if you're not you know, in active combat, it's still dangerous. Um, yeah. The possibility always looms. And there's also a sense of, for a person like you or Vonnegut or anybody who's thinking critically while they're in the midst of all this, there's always gotta be this sense of confusion over duty and purpose. And like, what the hell am I doing here? And is it right? Uh, like, you know, like all that kind of stuff. I think the question that I'm getting to is like, do you think, I guess it makes sense to approach a literature that involves the military with this kind of deconstructive collagey multimedia playful, um, kind of approach like to 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 come at it on a straight line almost seems like it wouldn't work you almost have to come at it like this in order to make any kind of sense of it or at least that seems to be the reflex that like you and a writer like vonnegut and a writer like maybe joseph heller are working from
1: yeah yes and especially for me it's like i can be as critical as i want in the military but i'm still in it right so like I'm participating in this thing that I'm critical of, which is I still struggle with that to this day. You know, it's like, do I even have a right to be critical of this thing and the people in it when I'm also doing it um, or also did it. So yeah, I struggle with that a lot. Um, but yeah, but I wanted the book to reflect yeah. that struggle too. It's like the person narrating is, you know, like self-reflecting also about his participation in these things. So, and I don't know if the answer ever, you know, Or if there even is an answer to that. So, well,
0: you're such a young, you were such a young kid when you joined, like, like, like almost everybody is who joins the military, you know? Yep. It's hard to, I think it's hard to, uh, you can't be too hard on yourself for decisions that you make when you're 18 years old.
1: That's true. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Especially with advertising.
0: (laughs) What about, um, any literature by um African American or uh, soldiers of color like is there any like literary precedent that you were pulling from I'm trying to think off the top of my head and and sadly I can't think of anything uh immediately like a writer of color writing about their um about their military experience in a vein you know similar to or of the same sort of general literary family as a writer like Vonnegut
1: um I can't I can't think of the name right now, but I have a book called Bloods, and it was by a black dude from uh, about Vietnam. You know what? Come to think of it, this might be this Five Bloods thing that Spike Lee just did. Yeah, I was just going to say.
0: I was just going to say that's ringing a bell.
1: Oh, wow. I never – I had a book on my shelf and didn't even think that's what Spike Lee was doing. Wow, because I haven't seen Spike Lee's thing. But, yeah, I have this book called Bloods, and that was good to look at. Like, they talk about the racism – Nothing, like, too satirical that they've been doing or, like, deconstructing, but it was more about, like, the reality of their experience as Black people. Um, so, like, formerly a lot of this stuff was similar, but but I can't think of a lot of other, like, um, military literature by Black people. And as maybe I haven't done my research enough. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but for me, like, what did it the most... That book, what influenced the book most for me was... Uh, Walt, uh, Waltz with Bashir. Have you seen that movie? No. Yeah, Walt. I can I'm from West Virginia, so my L's don't show up in the middle of my words often. Uh, <laughs> so Waltz with Bashir, to dance. Um, it's by Ari Folman. So it's about an Israeli when Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982. Um, so he's going around like, "What did we do there?" You know. So he's asking all of his friends, "What did we do?" and i saw this movie when i was in the military like uh i think when i wanted to when i knew that i was going to be writing but i never thought how it would play in anything but yeah that movie right there and like it's animated but at the end it switches to this real footage and it fucks me up every time i see it um so like that thing is so it's not necessarily like i mean israeli <laughs> um so, not black, but someone like not white American, you know. So, that was another precedent I had.
0: Okay. So, now I'm psychoanalyzing this a little bit. And you talked about how it fucks you up when it switches from animated to um, actual. And I'm wondering, like, if you thought about this and if I'm on the right track in thinking that maybe because of the nature of your role, in the Navy, like you said, you were working in intelligence and were, you know, doing radar and you were on a submarine and you were sort of away from combat, but you were helping to facilitate it uh, in some way. Like it, it strikes me that like work of that nature in a militaristic context has a certain abstraction to it. And that I could imagine. And I think too, like my cousin, I want to say was doing drone like drone tracking, you know, like tracking from a distance, uh, targets for drones. And they might have even been firing them from the States. You know, these are all, these things are all computerized. And so you, it's kind of like a video game. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I could be messing up some of the details, but I think about the abstraction of that process, but the very real world, uh, hardcore consequences. <laughs> of the work and like how to bridge that divide uh is, is that something that you have struggled with am i barking up the right tree
1: oh totally yeah yeah you yeah yeah you are like in the top of the tree uh you <laughs> barked up there you're at the top of the tree uh yeah that's yes all the time and that's kind of like what the end of water and power is wrestling with to like the drone story in there like closing that distance from like Having these people like these ghost like people show up in this person's apartment and then switching to the real stories from um, victims themselves in the military. I mean civilian victims of the military, switching to those stories and then to the list of like actual names at the end. So that was me like um trying to mimic what Waltzwith Bashir Waltz with Bashir was doing, like switching the footage, right? Animated to very real things but also wrestling with that, that distance, you know, like we have this luxury of distance from what we do most of the time, but this is the reality of it. So yeah, you totally spot on with that. Okay. (laughs) And you know,
0: I'm curious also like after going through all this and writing a book about it and obviously wrestling with these issues uh, if you feel defined in your views of the use of military force, if they've changed maybe since you were in the military, um, you know, if we look to a guy like vonnegut, he was obviously a pacifist, and um, you know, I don't know. It's like it's it always feels a little complicated to me because he gen- generally advocated for pacifism and nonviolence, but he never talked about world war II as a war that should not have been fought i think he called it a just war in the you know if i'm thinking if i'm remembering his books correctly so he did he obviously saw a necessity for combat in a certain context at least and just curious like where you fall on that after a decade in the navy
1: similar um like always a pacifist (laughs) uh But I like what you said earlier, like exactly what you said, like there could be a time when it's absolutely necessary. And I wouldn't like I would not support it if I felt like that was absolutely necessary. But that could also be wrong, too. Right. Because a lot of people felt like the Iraq war was absolutely necessary. So, you know, like what you said, is really complicated. And just because I may maybe I may feel like something is just a just war one day it may never be just or yeah. So I don't know. It's tricky. Yeah, and I always question World War Two. like, was it really just like people say that often? Like, was it really a just war? I'm not quite sure. Um, I, one thing, see, there we go. One thing I'm sure I'm like, somebody should have fucked Germany up for real. Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure about that one. I'm not a pacifist on that one. Right. So yeah, that shit was just in that instance. Um, the the rest of that shit maybe i don't
0: know <laughs> you know <laughs> i mean yeah like you talk about like uh, what happened in japan and the you know hiroshima and nagasaki i think you can have a real yeah. debate but hitler i feel pretty unequivocal about yeah um i'll give a more modern example cuz it, it's also something that i just was having a conversation about with a friend and um she was like bagging on obama who i'm generally a fan of but she was like he you know he did so much drone warfare he bombed a preschool and like all this stuff and i'm just like first of all i don't I, I don't know this story so i'm like googling like obama bombs preschool i'm like did he bomb a preschool? you know and I, I i have a hard time believing that he is not a decent human being based on all that i know and have heard from him i know we're not supposed to give politicians too much of a benefit of the doubt uh you know inherently but like I don't know. Yeah. I, I have a lot of love for Barack Obama and I guess like when I started to think more deeply about the issue of drone warfare from his perspective or from the perspective of any commander in chief um, as you're sitting there, I think from the outside looking in it would be like yeah, don't don't drone bomb anybody. Don't do that shit. But then what if you're like the president and you're like the, the head of the CIA or um, the national security agency comes to you and they're like, by the way, there's a camp in Afghanistan where they're training terrorists and they're going to blow some shit up and kill possibly thousands of civilians. Do you know what I'm saying? And so if you do nothing and you let this thing fester, then you might wind up having more blood on your hands than if you do something like I'm at least willing to entertain that idea as legitimate. Like, What are you supposed to do? If the decision-making process or the decision-making authority is really yours, like that's not an easy calculation. You know what I'm saying? I wouldn't want to have to make that decision. That's a horrible decision to have to make, but I can see how Obama could be rationally assessing it and could be like, well, this intelligence is pretty strong. Uh, You know, my, my guys are telling me that it's rock solid and like, this is what it is. If I don't put an end to it, thousands of innocent people could die and yeah. if I don't use a drone, then we've got to put soldiers on the ground and they could get killed. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it it becomes. Yeah.
1: My wife makes that exact same argument because I'm like, who, who did you say was, who you were talking to? A friend of yours? A friend of mine.
0: She's like, the, the, oh. she's like to the left of Che Guevara. She's like the leftist oh. person I, I've ever met in my <laughs> life.
1: <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, that's, like, I'm usually, like, in line with your friend. I was, like, Obama, get on my goddamn nerves. He dropped so much shit, like, drone bombs. So and my wife is, like, what you're saying. So, like, I've been wrestling with that, too. Um was, like, man, I struggle with Obama. Like, yes, I'm sure he is a good guy. He just doesn't want to kill anybody on purpose, like any kids on purpose. But then I, there's the reality of what was done that I struggle with. So, yeah. And, like, being in during that time, too, is like, ah, ah, you know? Right,
0: yeah. I mean, you have a different perspective on it. And I should yeah. say, too, like, I, you know, I might be susceptible or probably am susceptible to looking at him through rose-colored glasses, both because of who came before him and, like, the antipathy that I had for Bush and Cheney and then also who came after him. You know, it's easy for, it's easy to deify Obama in present context. He sure looks good right about now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I I struggle with, I mean, uh, yeah. Even like, I put it in the book too, you know, like the fictional part of like being at the ribbon, care, uh, ribbon, cutting ceremony, you know, like I struggle with the fact that a black dude is now like the president and still fucking everything up overseas. You know, like I struggle with that fact, like, Oh my God, like that is very true. And I'm not always fine with that, you know, like with that type of representation. Um, yeah, I think he didn't sign some order in Cambodia, so they don't like him in Cambodia, Uh, to like clean up the weapons or something and like he could have easily fixed it and this doesn't seem like a a moral quandary either but then so like children are still like picking up these yellow beads and bombs and getting messed up you know he could have cleaned it up so I'm like in Cambodia they don't really fuck with Obama you know so but that's the thing right like that comes with this job right the job of president so yeah it's weird.
0: It is weird. It is weird. We have a I think we have a pretty troubled last 100 years of uh American leadership <laughs> in relation to the exercise of military power. Like we've been at war for the last what almost 100 years. It's been 80 years. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It
0: never stops. Yep. Um so what about getting to writing? Like you is your first book potted meat? Is that it? It's potted meat in yeah. this
1: yeah, first book is potted Meat, yeah.
0: So, and I didn't realize that you were a visual artist. Did you have training in this, or you just came out and started painting, or?
1: Uh, family members and stuff, like cousins, would teach me how to draw and paint, and, um, you know, I took art classes in high school and stuff like that, and um, middle school, so, but no, like, really, like, great formal training, so there's a lot of, like, learning from people and myself, yeah, and potted Meat is a lot about that, too, like, a lot of painting and drawing, and doing all of this stuff um yeah
0: okay and then you started to get down to work on potted meat and what did that uh like what did the uh, composition process look like how long did it take you
1: it took me a few years um and because i was coming out of painting too i didn't realize that but uh at the time or well, like in the beginning of writing i didn't i was like writing a lot of three-paragraph stories. <laughs> so, like, totally, like, composing stories like I would a painting, you know, like, here's the background, here's the middle ground and foreground. And so, Potter Beat has a lot of three-paragraph stories, which is interesting. that I I didn't realize I was doing, you know, consciously at first, but after I picked it up on I was like, oh, this is what I'm doing. So, yeah, three years to write, and it's a lot of, like, short um, vignettes and stuff. And because I hadn't read a book, you know, or, like, hadn't read widely... One of my teachers, when I was writing Potter Beach, she was like, "Oh, this reminds me of um, the House on Mango Street," and I was like, "Oh, cool, I'll read it," you know. <laughs> and I picked it up and read it, and I was like, "Shit, I need to quit writing my book because my book is like copying this book," you know, accidentally copying it. But I pushed through and wrote it, so it's very similar to like in structure and style to House on Mango Street.
0: Hmm. But just like a happy accident.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I'm glad I read it though. Like, it it did shut me down for a while, but I'm glad I read it because it did like help me out and stuff eventually. So,
0: so how does a how does a guy from West Virginia go from being in the Navy for a decade to being in Denver, Colorado?
1: Oh, I was stationed out here. Yeah, you were. Yeah, there's yeah. A,
0: there's a Navy base in Colorado.
1: No, the um, the Air Force base, the uh, Buckley Air Force Base. Oh, okay. Yeah, so because like you know, satellites, radar jobs and stuff. I was on a lot of joint commands. Um, So, yeah, Buckley Air Force Base has a lot of Navy people there, uh, intelligence-wise.
0: Ah, got it. Okay. Is that down in Colorado Springs?
1: No, it's in Aurora. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. So you've been there ever since?
1: Yeah. Well, I I was here from, like, 2004 to 2007. Then I went back to Hawaii and then I liked it out here so much that I, when I got out the Navy, I just moved back out here.
0: Yeah, it's good living in Colorado. I like it there. It is, yeah. It's gotten hotter, though. I feel like it's been hot. My friends have said it this summer was like Phoenix.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. It was it's hotter here, yeah. All right. And I noticed the change around, like, 2010. Like, like 2010, <laughs> like, it's been hotter out here. It's just really weird, yeah. Or t- 2011, somewhere around there, yeah.
0: Well, it's only going to get worse. <laughs> I hate to break yeah. it to you.
1: <laughs> yeah, like when I was out here from like 2004, it was like nice and cool. and you know, yeah. Like... yeah.
0: Yeah, we're dealing – I mean, I live in Los Angeles. We're like just getting through the fires and I don't know, man. I Climate change I, – I know there's a lot of people worried about it, but I don't hear enough people talking about how worried they are about climate change. Like we should all be really fucking worried.
1: yeah. Yes.
0: Uh, well, it's good to talk with you, man. I really enjoyed this book. Um, and I feel like, I feel like it's a, for, any, even if you're not in the military, maybe especially if you're not, it's a great book to read to get a real sense of what it's like in contemporary times to be in. Mm. Um, not just like in practice, but also um, what the psychological and emotional. Uh, landscape is like, you know, and th- there's a level of depth there that's really uh, unique. There's some dark humor in it. I don't know. You do, you're doing a lot of different things well. And I suppose, like, the last couple of questions that I would pose to you is first of all, like, what has been the response to the book by friends of yours or readers of yours who are in the military or who have served? Have you heard from these folks?
1: Not much. Yeah. It's been a really quiet book. Um, a few people that I know, like, in the military read it. They're like, wow, like, you you did it. <laughs> you know, it was like, you got all the boring stuff. You know, like, it wasn't all heroic and action-driven. So they felt like it was representative of a a lot of military life. Um, yeah, a few of them. So, yeah, like, good people that I know who read it were like, yeah, I feel you. You know, Um few military people who read it was like, oh, man, you really got Japan down. You know, so they kind of skirted around the the bigger stuff that the book was dealing with uh yeah and I, I haven't heard from many like strangers in the military who's read the book so yeah that's and uh one of my friends read it and he was like man how did you get to work at the taxidermy museum I didn't I was like that wasn't real man like you should know better that wasn't <laughs> <laughs> you <know better. laughs> but to him he was like he was like i was wondering he was like i didn't i didn't get to work there i was like yeah because because it didn't exist you know right right <laughs> so enough of the book was real enough to him that it was convincing you know to him that it was there <laughs> so.
0: so are you working on anything new
1: yeah yeah i am i'm um i'm writing a book now about nas albums i mentioned that earlier um yeah and uh van hunt i don't know do you know van hunt um no he's a musician like uh earlier he was sort of in like the neo soul camp they put him in there but he's been making albums he lives in la so i'm writing a book about him his albums too so those are like my two big things right now books about music yeah
0: (laughs) all right man well it's a pleasure to meet you congratulations on water and Power. Uh, best of luck on the Nas book and uh, with life in Colorado
1: thank you so much yeah and uh, sorry about all the mishaps and stuff for getting this thing together but I'm, fin- I'm glad we finally got to do it so.
0: absolutely man absolutely best of luck to you
1: alright have a good one thanks
0: alright that is Stephen Dunn his novel again is called Water and Power it's available from Tarpaulin Sky his other novel is called Potted Meat also available from Tarpaulin Sky. Stephen can be found online at stephencdunn.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle at Twitter is Jr. at Junior. Stephen Dunn, Water and Power. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People Podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show, more than 670, is that what it is, episodes? All of it is available for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the program and you listen regularly and you get something from it, throw a couple of bucks in the hat over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Of course, this assumes that you have a couple of bucks to spare. If you're not in a good situation financially, I totally get it. Don't sweat it. If you are, and you can do it, patreon.com otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. You can send in a photo of where you listen, or you can DM the photo over at our Twitter feed, at otherppl, or on Instagram, at otherppl.podcast. This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app the app is free go get the app it's a great way to listen if you want to get some other people gear t-shirt sweatshirt tank top the t-shirts are really good you guys they're soft I like them they fit well they're, they're good t-shirts they're not scratchy do you know what I'm saying you can get a t-shirt just go to otherppl.com click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar next week on the program I have a Dean Kuntz as my guest the man has sold more than 500 million copies of his books <laughs> it's just like it's like hard to even like wrap your head around but Dean Koontz will be my guest you know his name you've seen his books at the airport and whatnot interesting conversation all right <laughs>